The photo is of my dad and my brother and I on the Staten Island Ferry, probably around 1954, 55, something like that. And the photo has always represented to me a sense of safety because I feel when I look at that picture, I see my dad holding my brother and me and keeping us safe, but also sharing with us his joy of traveling and getting around the world. It's kind of a bug that I think has afflicted all of us in my family that we're so used to traveling because we were in the military. So every four years or so we would go to a new place. And it was always exciting. It was always a new adventure. And even looking at the picture today, for the longest time, I never saw my brother in the picture. I only saw myself. And I thought, that's really weird <laughs> to not see that when my brother was there. But it was like I had my dad to myself. And it always reminded me of the gift of my dad. He wasn't around a lot because there were times that he would travel by himself. But safety was always present when he came back. And all the level, the sense of security and just being with him. And I know for my mom, with my mother, it's very difficult being a foreigner in the United States. So when my father was gone, I feel certain that there was a level of great anxiety and uncertainty. Safety became a really big issue, especially when he was home. Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, season two. Stories from the Black spiritual diaspora in partnership with the Muslim Wellness Foundation and Bayon Islamic Graduate School, the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary presents a new season of our podcast. This season is hosted by Dr. Camila Mukman Rashad. We're so glad you're here. You just heard from this week's guest, Shona Miyoke Kane Barrett, who's the resident priest at Mayokenji Temple in Houston, Texas. She also has dabbled in boxing and belly dancing, in addition to being a bishop. And I think her conversation with Dr. Rashad just might surprise you. My name is Kim Schultz, and I'm the coordinator of creative initiatives at the Interreligious Institute and producer of this podcast. So if you're ready, let's join the continuing conversation between Dr. Rashad and Shonen Miyoke. Thank you so much, Bishop Miyoke. It's so lovely to have you in this conversation on the Black Spiritual Diaspora our stories are so incredibly rich and dynamic, and it is truly my honor to learn from you and hopefully just share a small piece of your story as the first American woman and the first person of African-American and Japanese descent to be fully ordained in the Nichiren Shu Buddhist order. It is just a thrill to have you. And I want to offer this as a, a way for us to begin to learn a little bit more about that story. So Dr. Dan P. McAdams is a narrative psychologist and he wrote, if you want to know me, then you must know my story for my story defines who I am. And if I wanna know myself to gain insight into the meaning of my own life, then I too must come to know my story. It is a story that I continue to revise and to tell myself and sometimes to others as I go on living. And so you just shared with us one of those stories, a story of safety and of presence, of 
a father who you really felt kind of brought so much comfort to you and at such an early age. So I, I wonder if you could share just a little bit more about who your father is and how he has shaped who you are and who you are becoming at this point. Well, his name was Johnny Forrest Kane Jr. And he was from Milledgeville, Georgia. I don't know much about his life as a young man, just a few stories here and there. But his presence was very, very huge. He was not a small man. So somewhat larger than life. Yes. He was also a heavyweight boxing champion in the Army. Oh, wow. Yes. My grandfather and my granduncle were both boxers, Yes, as was my brother. <laughs> so it's something that ran through the family. So he taught my brother and me how to box when we were about five years old. He had us in the boxing ring together. And he was always making sure that we were there for each other in whatever mm -hmm. way we could be there. But he always taught us that we may have to fight someday. So I wanted us to know how. And he was also very dark, a very rich, dark chocolate. And as we got older, he used to, remember that song, Captain Midnight? He used to come yes. down singing Captain Midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. So we had a lot of fun with him. I can hear in your voice, like as you're sort of recalling some of these memories of your father and what his presence was like, you also mentioned that for your mom, right, having him sort of, you know, having to travel for the military, it made me wonder, how did the two of them meet? How did their stories cross? This is so funny. It took us a while to get it out of my mother. She was living with another woman who was sick that day and was supposed to meet her boyfriend at the train station. So she asked my mom to go meet him and bring him back to their apartment. So my mother does go out there and picks the wrong guy. No <laughs> way. <laughs> wow. Okay. She as, you know, a big black guy with a little white in his forehead. So she brought him home and he just came willingly. <laughs> so let me see this story play out. <laughs> and so her girlfriend was like, nope, that's not him. And so he and my mom just started out as friends mm. and eventually got together. Now, why do you think it took so long for her to share that story with you? I don't know. I think a lot of the Japanese don't like to talk about their stories. Mm. as if they have to defend something. And we talked to her a lot about it, you know, that we just want to know, and she doesn't want to dig up the past. Sure, yeah. sure. So if just for a moment, I would like for you to think of your life as a story or a novel. So let's imagine for a second that this novel of your life has a title and a table of contents, including the main chapters in the story, you first have to give your life story, this novel, a name. What would that be? Between. Tell me more. I've been thinking about this for a long time because several people keep telling me I should write my story because it is a story of belonging to two cultures and two ethnicities and trying to be a bridge between the two mm. of them and mm. finding a place where I am 
wholly and completely myself. Yes. And that's taken a long time and it's still ongoing. And now it's not like, oh, I have to figure this out. It's like, oh, what discoveries I'm in mm. and what new things arise that are gifts to me from coming from two cultures. Absolutely. Absolutely. And can you recall kind of your earliest memory of understanding who you are as a bridge, as someone in between, but also with gifts that could really help all of us think in different ways about identity and belonging? Uh, when I think about, it's probably in my early teens, because I figured I had to have a purpose. Mm. I never could figure out what that was, being this person who had a foot in two worlds, but also had to really deal with the major discrimination on all sides. Just mm. in every, every place I could turn around, there was somebody trying to discriminate against me for some reason. And I think when I was in the uh, high school, it really solidified for me that I would have to do something different. Mm. So I couldn't just try to fit here or try to fit there, that I would have to forge my own path. Yes. I was still somewhat a rebel and got into a lot of trouble in high school and had to use my boxing skills in high school because someone decided to call my mother a whore to my face. Oh my God, that's awful. And so we had a knockdown drag out in the cafeteria at school. And I thought I was going to be dead when my father found out about that. And instead? He stood up for me. Describe for our listeners, what are those two worlds? Like, where did you grow up? Grew up on military bases mostly came to the United States when I was about two. I was born in Japan, so there's a part of me that considers Japan my home. Mm -hmm. And so I got to visit home with my family and meet my relatives for the first time since I was a baby. Wow. And then we came back to El Paso and he eventually retired in El Paso. So that is the other home. You mentioned that in high school, you can clearly remember thinking, you know, I have to forge my own path and develop a sense of who I am and, and my purpose. And so it, it made me wonder what role, if, if any, did sort of religion and spirituality play in your life at that moment? How did that sort of sense of purpose and kind of developing a sense of meaning develop in your life at that time? You know, I wasn't very religious at that time. I was a Buddhist at that time without really understanding fully what that meant. If I had joined when my mom, one of her friends asked her to go to a Buddhist meeting and she didn't want to go, but she allowed me to go because her friend's daughter was my friend. And I was told not to join anything. <laughs> so naturally I had to do it. Of course. You were told not to join by your mother. Yes, yes. Oh, My mother is fan of religion. She has always been anti-religion because she doesn't trust how people would do things. You know, like if you give a gift or they're always after your money or, you know, all of that kind of stuff that she ran into and how people treated her early on in the States, in the Christian communities. I don't know 
what her relationship was to faith early on. We're still working on that. She swore she would never set foot in a temple, but she did when I was ordained. So, Oh, that's amazing. Major accomplishment. Yes. <laughs> Most of what I recall at that time was not so much a faith-based thing as more of the politics of person. Because I remember a lot of times watching TV with my dad and his expressing his desire to have been with Dr. King, mm-hmm. um, but understanding that he couldn't because he was in the military. Also, his frustration with people like known as Cassius Clay back then, because my dad was such a sportsman that he didn't respect the kind of conduct he observed in the young Cassius Clay. Uh, he came later to, known as Muhammad Ali. <laughs> he came to respect him a great deal. Mm. Time went on. So there was a lot of that which contributed to me understanding that I had to forge my path. I had a lot of anger about, you know, back then they used to call you white or colored. Mm. So when I was asked to fill out forms, I refused. And they'd say, you didn't pick anything. And I said, so what color am I? You know, I was just a little bit on the radical side at that time. Mm -hmm. It was a very painful time that I recall because black folks would tell me that I was not black enough. And white folks would say they didn't see me as black, that, you know, maybe I was like a Hawaiian or something. So there was a lot of that going on. Mm -hmm. And even when I went away to college, uh, people would tell me, well, you don't understand blackness because your mom is not black. So how do you understand that? You know, so there was always this separation uh, of being in, but not all the way in. Yeah. And that sounds heartbreaking. It makes me wonder, one, how aware your parents were of sort of that that tension, that conflict, that sort of exclusion, and what they might have offered to you. See, and I don't recall ever having that conversation. Hmm. I recall that all of our friends that we hung around with were families like ours. Okay. With Japanese mothers and Black fathers. Hmm. And it was such a loving community that you knew you could just go there all understand each other. My question is, if you could say something, right, if you could go back in time and have a conversation with, say, 16-year-old Miyoke, what would you tell her about the journey that was to come in Buddhism? What would you want to share with her? I think it would be to stay the course, to stand in your own truth, no Mm -hmm. matter It relates to something my father told me a long time ago, that if you can stand in front of me and do whatever it is you do without shame, I will accept Mm. you. Oh. And Mm. I didn't understand what a gift that was. He was quite open in so many different ways. Even though he didn't go to church, he remained a member of his church back in Georgia till the day he died. Wow. So he was a Methodist. Mm -hmm. And when he realized I was practicing Buddhism, he was very cool with it. 
as you're thinking about sort of the path, you know, from 15, 16 years old of the example that your parents modeled of pursuing those things that they were called to do, who they felt they were called to love and to be in community with and to build family with. From each of your parents, what would you say was the most important lesson that you learned from them that you then carried forward with you in your journey in Buddhism? For both of them, it was very important that you honor your name, who you were. One of the things I can truly say, and many people don't believe this at all, that we never talked about race in my family. Mm. And it was always about family, that not you're a mixed child or you're a black child or a Japanese child, but you are a cane. Mm. And you are. And no matter what, you have to live up to that name. What did that name mean to you? How did you make sense of that? That I was my father's daughter. Because we didn't deal with the racial issue much that later on when his daughters were dating, he had a difficult time with some of it. Mm -hmm. All of us remember him saying, you know, white men only want certain things from black women. You know, we'd say, but dad, look who you married. You know, it's like, what can you say about that? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When I decided to become a priest, Everybody was in my family was kind of like, oh, well, there she goes. That's what she does. <laughs> you know, something new to do. She's a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And so I went back and forth to Japan several times during the course of training. The final ordination was spending a, a month in the monastery in Japan. Mm-hmm. And my mother, my husband, and my daughter all came over to Japan to witness. And my mother was so proud. And so my mom also, after she saw all of that, and we decided that we would stay in a little, like a spa kind of thing, an onsen, it's a hot springs. When I was going to go into the women's bath, everybody was having a freak out. And my mother said, no, 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 she's a woman. She's a priest, my priest. <laughs> oh, wow. They let me in. (laughs) But she was very proud to tell people that I was a priest. One of the things I discovered in the course of my training was that my mother's sister is a devout Nichiren Buddhist. When I was training and I came back to Japan and my aunt said to me, oh, so you finally come home. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? How beautiful. (laughs) She's telling me that yes, this is our family tradition. And they took me to the neighborhood temple where our ancestors were buried. Mm. And that just totally blew my mind. So it's like a full circle experience. Absolutely. I mean, that must have been so affirming that this path you thought you had to forge for yourself, (laughs) you might have been returning to one that you were already on in some ways. Absolutely. Yeah. really made me understand there are no accidents. None at all. My attraction to this faith came because I had experienced it as a baby. 
Mm -hmm. So I have one last question. Lucille Clifton quote, and I love the poet Lucille Clifton, and she says, say it clear and it will be beautiful. And so I wonder what in your life do you want to be clear and also beautiful? That each person, each one of us, no matter what, who we are, is a gift to the world. Mm. And we all have a purpose and a mission. And our path of faith is what is needed to carry us along finding out what that mission is. Yes. Because without faith, it's very difficult to stand in your truth, to stand and be who you are. Mm -hmm. Faith is such an incredible foundation for a life worth living. Thank you for being such an incredible gift. Going from being a boxer to a Buddhist priest. <laughs> I was also a belly dancer for a while. See, you're holding back, Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to have to one day buy this book with the title, this novel titled Between. <laughs> and it will give us all the stories and all of the chapters that, you know, we just begin to scratch the surface. And, you know, it's one of my absolute pleasures to meet you and to learn more about kind of your your rich background, but also what I feel is like your earnestness, your bravery, your honesty about who you are and in standing in that truth so that you can also be a model for everyone else that might be thinking, how do I integrate all of these threads of my life? When people want to force me to choose one or the other, they want to exclude or perhaps have me believe that I don't belong. Mm -hmm. You have been very defiantly and unapologetically saying, no, I will take all of the above. <laughs> it all belongs to me. And, and in that way, I will walk the path that perhaps I forged, but also that maybe I was returning to. Thank you so much for sharing just a little bit of your story and for being just such a a wonderful gift to us. Oh, thank you. If I see you as a gift as well. So there it is. We hope you enjoyed that story and conversation between Dr. Camila Rashad and Shonen Mioke. So powerful and surprising. Thank you so much for joining us. More information on our guest, as well as her formative photo, can be found at OurSevenNeighbors.com. We hope you will join us next time for another episode of Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora. Thanks for listening to Our Seven Neighbors. We would love it if you would please share this podcast. And please share your photo story with us on social media if you like. You can find us at the Interreligious Institute on Facebook or Instagram. And if you feel compelled, tell us your story. Share a photo. Or, better yet, share it with someone around you. As Lucille Clifton offers, say it clear, and it will be beautiful. See you next time. <laughs>